Welcome to Mouth Off, a platform for marginalised groups to get their stories heard. Episodes cover a wide range of topics from sexuality and disability to education and inequality. I'm Clary Sadler. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing participatory arts facilitator, music educator, and the recently appointed chief executive of Anthem, Rian Hutchings. Rian has been a freelance opera director and producer for 20 years and has worked with organisations such as the English National Opera and the Welsh National Opera. She's also the creative director of Opera Sonic, an organisation which she founded in 2014. Other previous roles include the partnership manager of Artworks Cymru, a partnership programme based in Wales that develops practice in participatory settings. Hi Rian, thanks for coming on the show. So, as I said in the introduction, you've got vast, widespread experience in the field of music and participatory arts. Uh, We first met, I think it was like a symposium that you were leading in St. David's Hall. I think it was 2014, maybe 2015. Could have been, could have been, (laughs) yes. There were many, many symposiums all over the place at that point. Yeah, and then that, I think, fed into what became the Artworks Cymru Participatory Arts um, Partnership Programme, of which Forget-Me-Not Productions is a partner organisation. You've done a lot, you wear a lot of hats, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. How would you describe yourself in a nutshell? And do you view yourself more as a facilitator, an arts facilitator, or an artist, or are they kind of interchangeable? Yeah, so I would describe myself as um, a producer, a director, a facilitator, um, a Welsh woman, a teaching artist, um, all of those things, really. As you say, many hats. And um, really, opera has been at the core of my practice for most of my life. Um, I've spent a lot of time working in the opera world, but very much in the participatory opera world. Um, and so music's right at the centre of that and, it, and, and young people and communities are right at the centre of that. So that's been a huge passion of mine um, throughout my career, really. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do. And I've done it in lots of different guises. I've done it for big organisations when I worked for Welsh National Opera. I've done it for small organisations and seeded my own um, organisation, Opera Sonic. Um, and now I'm taking on a new role with Anthem which is about um, potentially championing and funding work for young people and music in Wales. So, but it all feels like the same, although there are lots of different roles and lots of different hats, it all feels like the same thing to me because it's the same thing at the centre of it. Yeah. Which is, yeah, this this passion for music, for opera, for young people, for communities, for um, sharing, sharing the love of that, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Mouth Off, the podcast, focuses on issues affecting marginalised groups. So we've had lots of people on talking about a variety of things from, we had a um, a, a pastor, Pastor Steve, on talking about, uh, he's quite the sort of, I guess, new age. I don't know if you'd, if that's the term you'd use, but he's, his church is very inclusive and he's given sermons on a variety of topics from LGBTQ plus issues to feminism and all sorts. And um, we've also wow. had a playwright, disabled playwright on, Kieran Fitzgerald, who was talking about, you know, life as a as a playwright and, and sort of 
I guess, the issues he has come up with being disabled. I guess from the perspective of you being a female and a Welsh woman working in the field of opera, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in thinking it's somewhat a male-dominated industry or is that just one of these misconceptions I've got? You know, what obstacles have you found being a woman in that world, if any? Yeah, I think I think there there is there has been historically quite a lot of male dominance in opera um, for in the directing field and also very much in the conducting field um, and in the orchestral leading field. And, you know, that that has been the kind of mainstay of of men, I guess. Um, I think it's changing. It's probably changed changing uh, more, more quickly for directors um, than it is for um, conductors. Although I have a fantastic colleague, um, Alice Farnham, who's leading a woman conductors training. She's on a mission to try and get more women women into conducting, and I think that's a brilliant thing. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's. Uh, I started um, really as a, a stage manager first and foremost that's what I trained in I trained at Royal Welsh College um as a stage manager and then um but was always wanting to get into directing um and I I did a lot of singing as a child and lots of performing in school so I always had that in my background and I didn't really know about opera at all until I went to college and I had to stage manage the magic flute Hmm. and I had to stage manage some opera scenes and I kind of went oh my gosh look at this (laughs) <laughs> Look at this art form. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, so it opened out a whole a whole world to me, really. But it took me it took me a while to get into working on opera, um, and you know that was it's quite hard to break into that world. It, the opera companies are quite are very structured, um, usually very big companies, uh, very traditional in the way that they run, and so just breaking into that world and being taken seriously. Um, is it was quite difficult to, to get there and actually what happened was I, w- I went to work for English National Opera in London um, and there was an amazing lady who's still one of my mentors uh, called Lynn Binstock who was running the staff direction department at that point um, and she is a massively passionate um, American lady but you know huge, has worked in England all her life she's really passionate about trying to get women involved and she, I went for an interview and she saw something in me that she thought might be, might be of use to her <laughs> at the opera. So I went to, I got, ended up getting a job there. And again, I mean, a lot of my colleagues were men. They were Oxford and Cambridge graduates. Mm. They, you know, they had a certain network, which you, you tend to find. I think there's, in some ways, there's more challenge around class um, in that world than, than necessarily gender. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, I think I think, as I say, when I started out, you know, there were I could probably count the opera, female opera directors on one hand. and That's changed a lot now. And I think there are some really amazing women out there who are carving a path in opera. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it could always we can always do better, can't we? we can yeah. always do better. And do you think, you know, talking there about the gender imbalance I mean, we live in a gender imbalanced world, so maybe it's a bit unfair to be kind of pointing the finger specifically at opera. Do you think, you know, as a director that has worked in other art forms as well, do you think that's that that is just true of the profession, whether it's opera, ballet, theatre? Is it kind of just the directors out there tend to be male? 
no i don't think i don't think that's true i think there's i think there's a lot of amazing women coming through mm. i think i mean yeah it's, it kind of it, it goes in cycles a little bit isn't it i mean here in in wales at the minute you know there was a point where um all the main big companies had women at mm. the helm and now it seems to have moved back you know the tide has turned and now we've got lots of men at the helm but that doesn't mean that the, those women aren't out there and couldn't do that job yeah um i i think in opera there is there's a there it's very risk averse so you know you have to have proved that you can that you can take on a big production like that because they you know they're looking for something that's going to um potentially uh offend people if you do the wrong thing with madam butterfly or mm. the wrong thing with you know some of these big pieces that have been around for so long <laughs> um which is which is crazy because of course you you know you want brilliant ideas and actually what i find is it, you know opera is so much about collaboration because you're balancing so many people so many creative people in the room and actually women tend to be a lot better at that <laughs> you know as a, as a rule we're, we're way better at kind of negotiating and collaborating than men are um I, that's just a massive generalization but you know <laughs> it, I, I have noted that as I've as I've been in the room with with different um different directors because what I did at, at ENO was was I was a staff director so I was mm-hmm. assisting on lots and lots and lots of productions which was amazing yeah um, and actually now I'm thinking about it I don't think I I assisted one woman when I was there <laughs> out of the whole three and a half years that I was there so yeah. <laughs> there we go <laughs> So uh, if we could talk a little bit now about, you sort of said class divides being more of an issue within the the world of opera than necessarily gender. Um, I was kind of thinking when preparing for this interview about those old sort of stereotypes that exist about opera being, you know, quite elitist or only for older generations, you know, white, upper middle class backgrounds, want to dress up in their pearls. Um... You know, and like every stereotype, they might be rooted in some truth, but that can be quite damaging for any industry to have that attached to it. Um, and the work that you've done, I know it's slightly different. You're, you know, with with Opera Sonic, it's a smaller scale organisation. It's participatory. It's aimed at young people. Um, but you seem to challenge that or challenge the status quo in, in regards to what people might think or, you know preconceived ideas how important is it for you to sort of appeal to diverse audiences but also you know reach diverse participants as well um you know so reaching marginalized audiences as well as the mainstream i mean for for me opera is an art form first and foremost now you know if you if you walk into any big opera company and go and sit and see their shows what you'll see is the repertoire of opera that that we that's been handed down to us over the years um you know from the from the kind of 1700s 1600s when opera was born right down to modern modern day although we we see less um kind of up-to-date contemporary operas on on kind of the, the big opera company stages because they're a big box office risk so really you know those companies are putting on massive shows and they need to need to get their audiences in in order to balance the budget mm. so for them it's really important to do the big well-known pieces um and i think that for me that's that's not opera that's the opera repertoire and mm. the history of opera 
for me, there's the art form then as well at the centre of that. And the art form is amazing because it's about it's about voice. It's about giving voice. Um, and it can be about chorus. So it can be about community and about putting community on stage. And it's about emotion and passion because it's got music involved in it as well. And it's about theatricality mm. um, and storytelling and narrative. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing art form because it's, it's so, it has all these different things wrapped into it. Um, and I think that's what I work with in communities when I'm working with opera. Um, and that's what I'm offering to them. And that's what I'm offering to young people as well. And, and that, you, you can see, you know, that, that's a really exciting mix to take in because people start to think about the stories that they, they can offer and then how we can make that into song and then how we might perform that together as a chorus and then how we might make that theatrical. And the journey and the process of making it is, is in, innately inclusive, weirdly, mm. um, which is so strange because the art form is seen as elitist and exclusive. Mm. Um, but actually, that's not when you're in the middle of doing it, that's not what it is. Um, which is, yeah, and I think, and I think we get that exclusive elitism from from the way that opera came into the UK. So you know, it was very much shipped in yeah. by by the people, the, the the aristocracy who wanted to have something to amazing to go and see, and they'd heard that there was this fantastic art form, and hmm. you know, you've got Handel coming over and making these pieces at the Academy of Ancient Music, and you know, the them, them being very expensive to put on so he has to he has patrons who are you know so it it, it has that uh veneer over it from its history mm. but i mean i always loved i have to say i have i loved working for welsh national opera because their history of opera in in wales was you know that somebody um over a shop in pontypris over a i think it was um i think it was a um like a car, a motor shop or something in Pontypridd decided that they wanted to do opera. So they formed this company, you know, back in the 1940s, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and of course, there were so many amazing singers around <laughs> um, in the valleys that they could they could get a chorus together and they could start doing opera. So it feels like it grew from from Wales's passion for singing yeah. here. And I've, I always loved that story, that kind of birth story of Dublin O, because it's very anti yeah. kind of the way opera developed in London. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, that, for me, that's what I'm, I'm offering when I take opera out into the community. And I guess I'm starting from my passion for it. But it, it feels to me as an artist, like a, almost like an investigative tool that I can take out to meet the communities that I meet and the people that I meet and that we can then investigate, we can use it as a, as an investigative tool to find out about their lives and about what they want to tell me about. And of course it's not, you know, the kind of classical, um, I guess Italian opera form is not always the right thing to do. And I, I've in my time have mixed it up, massively and brought rock and pop into it and brought traditional folk song into it and you know I mean I have an incredibly broad mm. um, approach and really for me as long as there's music and story and theatricality in there then you know anything can be opera with with all those ingredients yeah yeah I mean the, the work you do with opera sonic uh tends to be I guess new 
innovative work, creating new work, finding new composers, working with new writers. Is that the key for you then, I guess, to keep opera relevant and for you personally, creating those new pieces of work, you know, and, and getting, getting rid of the shackles, you know, that come from those negative associations, or those stereotypes that aren't true of the whole art form. Yeah, like thinking of the art form. Is that what, yeah. what sort of where you thrive on, creating new work? and? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I, that, that, there's the art form. So we should be able to make it for today. Mm. Um, and you know there, we have amazing composers and writers and singers and designers and directors today so you know putting them in a room you know with a with a community or with a group of young people um, you know you can do so much um, the other thing I really love about it is because because it because it as an art form it holds a group really well mm. you know you've got this this concept of the chorus um, so that's brilliant. So you can you can work with a community group and they are the chorus yeah. um, and they are telling their story because this is what you see in a lot of traditional, especially the big Verdi operas mm-hmm. of the 19th century, you know, is that those those operas are stories of a community and yeah. something that a community is going through. Because, of course, at the time, Italy, he was right. The time he was writing, Italy was going through unification. And so a lot of those big pieces that he wrote are very political and they're about communities in Italy who are going through change and you know they have lots of political messages embedded in them Mm. Um, and we forget that today we see them as kind of um, these kind of weird slightly archaic pieces on the stage but you know they've got all of that in there Mm. Um, and they can be hugely exciting when you start to crack that open and open that up and so we can do the same thing you know I, I wrote an opera um, in a primary school um, um, as part of the Newport Legends project, which was the first big project that um, Opera Sonic did. Um, and obviously, you know, Newport, the big political thing in Newport was the Chartists. Everybody, yeah. everybody does something on the Chartists in Newport. Mm. So we took a slightly oblique angle on it and we looked at um, uh, this particular land agent, um, Tom Prothero, who was Lord Tradiga's land agent. And we looked at his meteoric rise from being a young boy in Usk to suddenly like becoming this lawyer and land agent and having a lot of power. And he was kind of one of the key figures who was trying to um, push John Frost down um, mm. and, and stop him being the kind of revolutionary that he was. Um, so we wrote this piece in, in the school and, you know, we had, we had two sides. We had, we had all the Tom Prothero's friends who were very rich and then all John Frost and all his friends and, Oh God, the kids loved it, you know, <laughs> coming up with these two choruses that were two sides of the argument. Yeah. Um, and it just brought the whole thing to life. It brought history to life for them, but it also brought the passion of, that these two sides were feeling to life for them. Um, putting that on its feet and then putting it into music. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so much fun to be had, Clary. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that that for me would be the way in and it would have been lovely to have had I guess you know when I was at school <laughs> we barely had anything like that resembled drama but it would have been great sometimes I feel very very jealous of what young people today have available because there are so many things um you know yeah. to to access to get people um you know involved in these worlds and I think my first taste of actually going to the opera i think i watched um faust at faust or dr faust faust yeah 
Faust, yeah. Yes, that's the one. Dr. Faustus, I'm getting confused with the play. Um, yes, in, in um, Wales Millennium Centre, didn't help that I had terrible seats right at the back. You know, we were in the cheap seats and I couldn't hear that well and I had a terrible oh. cold. Um, oh. But it was a real slog for me and I, I think we actually left before the end. Yeah. But actually, having, you know, worked with clients that, are really interested in musical theatre. One of the things we've sort of looked at is opera and ballet and operetta, you know, and there's a lot more, you know, yeah, there's a lot more engaging works out there. And I think, as you said, it's about how you deliver them. And I think being involved in a new piece of work is always very exciting. And I love it, you know, when a, uh, say, a, a contemporary band or a, you know, even an alternative rock band kind of cross genres and get a bit of you know Mm. opera and classical music in there i was listening to a piece uh that came on today it was um by a 90s band um called manson and they've got a song called witness to an opera and just Ah. the start of it is absolutely stunning it ends up being about a seven eight minute song but the start of it is just kind of like this aria that just turns into this I don't know, it's very bizarre and I wouldn't quite know progressive rock, I guess, but it sort of blends the art forms. Yes, oh, that's about, lovely. That it, sounds fantastic. Yes, yeah, it's, it's about sort of realising yeah. that there are, you're not stuck to the confines of what people might think this art form is. You can kind of go anywhere of with it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I, one of the companies I worked with quite early on was Music Theatre Wales. Mm. Um, and again, you know, they've, they've always made new work. Um, and it's really interesting to see see over the years the way that they've pushed the boundaries and the last piece that they did um Dennis and Katya um which which I saw literally in the riverfront just before lockdown actually and it had um I think it's like one I might have got this wrong but it's three cellos one violin and two singers yeah and you know you you might think well god how are you going to do an opera with that but Mm. you know just the the inventiveness of the composer and how 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 playful he'd been with that setup. Um, so it doesn't need to be, I mean, I think that's the thing is it doesn't need to be like a huge, massive orchestra and a big chorus and things like that. Actually you could have one voice or two voices yeah. or, um, you know, and, and be really playful with how you use that. We did a piece. Um, I did a piece working with Welsh national opera, actually um, an opera sonic working together. Um, we were working with some local schools in Newport um, exploring the idea of um, like looking at the suffragettes mm. and the idea of protest, um, and what we did with the, with with the the group was they wrote their own songs 
but they formed five little bands yeah and wrote, and wrote so they all wrote in different genres so we had like a comedy rap group we had a punk <laughs> band we had like a dreamy girl guitar band we had like a little indie band and then we had a kind of girl group who were all doing it to a backing track <laughs> and dancing and then we had an opera singer wow. you know, in the middle in the in the middle of all that mix who was um we kind of theatrically staged it so the opera singer was playing the education director uh-huh. um from the, you know, the the mp the education director from the government coming to speak to them and they kidnapped <laughs> her and took her around to see um all the different things that they were talking about that they wanted to talk about and yeah again it's just being playful with that but bringing that bringing that voice into the room in amongst all of that musical richness mm-hmm. why not <laughs> definitely definitely I was having a, a chat, I think I mentioned earlier um, in this interview about the playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, mm. who was on our podcast, our very first episode, actually. I think you've met Kieran, you know Kieran, do you? Yeah, I have. Yes, I've um, met Kieran, yeah. Yeah, he's, I think, graduated, he, he's um, a writer, studied at um, University of South Wales and graduated, I think, about a year and a half ago now, and we were having a, a conversation about you know the representation of um disabled actors or just disabled people within the arts in general and you know massively disabled community massively underrepresented within opera within musical theater in general theater in general and on the rare occasion that you get you know a disabled character written into a play or musical or opera um, it is still very commonplace for a, for a casting director to cast a non-disabled actor to play that role. Um, I just wondered, you know, why do you think that is? And if you were involved in the casting of a, a disabled character, would you yourself have any apprehensions about casting a disabled actor in that role? I mean, I, I think... Um you know, from a from an opera standpoint, um, I've only seen it happen once that there's been a disabled disabled singer, mm-hmm. and that was um, that was um, um, it came about because it was a big project that English National Opera were doing, um, and there was one, and it was a it was actually a singing competition, an opera competition, yeah, um, and one singer came forward who was blind, um, and she had the most incredible voice. And they ended up making, they basically made it, they loved her so much that they kind of created a role for her. And she ended up doing a production of Rigoletto in which she played Gilda. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and they had to, they basically worked really hard to adapt everything mm-hmm. so that she could do what she needed to do within the production. Um, but again, I think that's, I think that's the, the key issue, really, that certainly I see from, from, from opera is that, a, a lot of the, if you know, if you're going to do those roles for big companies, they are, they, you know, they take a huge amount of energy and like, like some of the pieces are three hours long mm-hmm. and things like that. So, you know, going into, knowing that you're going to go into that and do that, you've, you, you, it's almost, you have to train. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's, and you've probably trained for a good kind of five, six, seven years before you've even got to the stage to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, financially you've got to be pretty stable and you've got to have a lot of backing and a lot of energy um you know and as we know you know clearly you know a lot of the time um disabled people are 
don't have that backing or they don't have that financial backing or they're using that to, you know, just to get through the barriers of living every day. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard for them to get to a point where they might have trained as an opera singer mm-hmm. and, and be stepping on that opera stage. But, um, you know, we need to do more of it. And I mean, as I say, you know, I, I feel that opera is hugely flexible and it doesn't have to be that three hour thing. And it could be that, you know, it could be a 20 minute thing. It could be, it could be just trying something out or, and certainly if there was, if, I mean, if there was an opportunity to cast somebody who was disabled, who could sing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would be so up for that. I think it would be yeah. really exciting to, to see how, how that would work and and build those characters into what to what we're doing and i i know you and i well not you and i but i know you've been talking to rosie who's running opera sonic at the moment Mm -hmm. about about you know working with young people and music in in newport and whether there's ways to start doing more of that because i think from from wales's perspective we're 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 behind yeah we're behind when it comes to music and um young disabled people and we need to like just up, up the game because just music and provision for young people and how how will they ever want to go into that as a career if they if they're not even being offered it exactly educationally so yeah yeah we've just got um we've just um i say just we've been seeing her for a few months now but we've got a, a client in hong kong mm. um British. They they moved there when she was young, so her mum is Welsh, her dad is English, and she's been living there most of her life, I think. And they are about to move back to, I think, to the sort of Stroud area, Cheltenham, maybe. Yeah. So in preparation for that, we've been doing music, inclusive music sessions via Zoom, as best we can adapt that via Zoom when you've got a client yeah. in Hong Kong with that time difference. Yes, Wow. But it's been, it's been great. It's been an eye opener just to see that that this kind of thing can be adapted, mm. but also to see the potential that she has shown via Zoom using yeah. software that we're not there. You know, it's much easier if you're in the room guiding with someone using this kind of digital software, like virtual DJ. She's been exploring you know oh, mixing, mixing and creating a mashup of two different tracks that's that's what we've yeah. been working on you know and you can sc- share your zoom screen so you can sort of see what they see but but it's yeah. not really the same as being in the room but she's done yeah. fantastically well and you just think yeah she's a wheelchair user she's non-verbal so she's using you know communication aid and um, various technology yeah. assistive technology to access all this and you just kind of think yeah if if that was available you know mm. all the way through school yeah then imagine what these young people could yeah. be achieving by adulthood you know yes. um yeah. absolutely absolutely so what I mean, what I, do you... I think I think it's um I, you know I think there are examples out out there in the opera world of people who have made it I'm thinking of Thomas Ostermeyer who's um I don't know if I've got his name right actually but he's an amazing, amazing baritone who works in the leader world, and and just yeah, he's he's done incredible things um, as a as a disabled man. But it doesn't get in the way of his voice. He just gets on with it, and mm. you know, God, the quality that's that's coming from him vocally, it just pins you to the wall. Yeah. Um. 
so i mean it, i think it would yeah i think I th- but i think we need to be much more open to that and i do think that yeah the amount of training that's required mm-hmm. the amount of support that you need to do that is is an issue and not just for disabled young people but it's an issue for young people coming from all kinds of different diverse backgrounds yeah i was and, just going to say we, we you know in think you know not just limiting this discussion to opera then but in the the wider arts world um you know what, what do you think i guess i'm thinking more mainstream organizations that perhaps have have the money to invest in you know in their outreach um kind of programs what do you think they should be doing more of or less of in order to be more accessible and to reach a more diverse marginalized communities I'm a great believer in in dialogue. I think I think you authentic dialogue. You know, mm. I think you've got to you've got to invest in in the community that you want to work with and spend time. And it's not just going to happen tomorrow. You've got to actually be in it for the long haul and listen and exchange and be flexible and maybe do some things that you didn't think you were going to do in the beginning, but, but somebody suggested it. So you're going to try it out and see what happens. Yeah. And you know, that, that takes a commitment from an organization. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a situation where with Opera Sonic, where I created an organization and I didn't, I created it because really we, we'd spent, at Welsh National Opera, we did two really amazing projects. One was the the Valley Street Songs, and then we did a big project in Wrexham for three years, Wrexham Street Songs, and 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 both of those projects really inspired me because because we we kept them very open, um, and we spent time meeting people and chatting to people. But the upsetting thing about them was that three years wasn't long enough we got Mm. to the end of three years and it just it felt like at the end of three years we were just getting going yeah and that some really exciting things were going to be possible but we but we had to say well we've come to the end of our three-year project now Mm. so really the whole impetus for opera sonic for me was what would happen if there was an opera company that that lived in a community and it and that's where it grew its work yeah and it and you know it it spent time and there was no agenda to leave yeah there was no agenda to move on it was just always going to be there going hey how about opera Mm. um and oh you come and do this with us or come and do that you know and that's yeah i i think for me that's got to be the way forward you know you we can't impose things on people and do things to people yeah we need to do things with people and we need to understand that our agendas are not their agendas and so we need to have that dialogue have that exchange do you think sort of participatory arts you know are they by their very nature more inclusive like should everyone be taking a leaf out of out of you know the book of opera sonic and other participatory arts organizations yes i think that's absolutely right I mean I I think the practice in itself you know um, of being a participatory artist call it what you will call it a community artist call Mm -hmm. it a teaching artist I know there's lots of debate about what we call ourselves (laughs) but um, um, yeah I think we we come in with with that want to be collaborative to be inclusive and to empower people Um, you know that's at the very root of the practice um, we're we're handing over our art form 
saying our art form is your art form let's make something together and you know there are lots of different ways of making that that work together um you know and some of them can be more um strongly artist-led and some of them can be more strongly community-led you know there's a whole spectrum of Mm -hmm. that practice but um i think at the heart of it there is this 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 um passion for being collaborative for handing over power and sharing power in some way um and and you know finding you know finding that kind of cooperative way of working um and i think i think of, of course you know there are there are instances in which an artist has an idea and wants to make their idea mm-hmm. um but actually, what do we lose by sharing things? I don't think we lose anything. I think we just gain. Yeah. I think it just makes everything richer. And I think nine times out of ten, if you are that artist that has gone in, you know, and, and said, I'm going to create this project, when you start that participation participatory process, nine times out of ten, it changes and evolves and it becomes so bigger and so better than you ever imagined, you know. And Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. Do you think, you know, the whole, the way that the, the arts world, I mean, everybody is adapted during this lockdown one, lockdown two, lockdown three. Um, this last year has made everyone rethink how we do things and think outside the box. But do you think it's changed the landscape of um, the way artists collaborate and, you know, the participatory arts practice? Has that changed? Or do you think it will kind of go back to what it was, but with more added to it? <laughs> There'll be more, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that, um, I hope, I really hope that what it's shown is that that participatory arts is extremely valuable mm. to us, to communities, to Wales, and that we've got a lot to give. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's what I've seen in terms of what's happened. It's it's the companies who are close to their communities who've really been able to make a difference and make an impact yeah. and, and think about, you know, how are they delivering and what, what can they actually offer? Because they're doing that in collaboration mm-hmm. with many, many other community services and with the communities themselves. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've really been able to say, right, well, I know what's going to make a difference here and I'm working with all these other services and, and, and with that, with my participants to, to find out what, what's good for them at this point and what I can do. Um, and it's, I, I, you know, it's, I, I think we, I, I know I'm missing going out mm. to see shows. So, I mean, it's, I'm not saying by any means that we shouldn't be doing that anymore. Yeah. I really, I, you know, I, I, I want to go to a concert. I want to go to a show. I want to be able to sit in a theater with an audience and hmm. have that, incredible experience of sharing something on a stage with with a whole room full of people I don't know yeah you know that is that that really gets me excited I love that um and I want I want to be able to go into a gallery and look at art as well so I'm, I'm not saying that any of that stuff shouldn't happen anymore but I think I I really hope that we've learned um and you know things like the connect and flourish fund that's opened at the arts council um you know, yeah, I, I, I can see the way that trusts and foundations have, have been supporting particular organisations who really are out there making a difference and they've kind of gone, right, we're going to get behind you. I hope that people value the arts a little bit more now and understand 
that you know they're an important part of their life and that actually it's it has been one of the ways that people's mental health has been supported during this time yeah there's been so much out there on tiktok and twitter and mm-hmm. facebook you know people performing and just getting up and singing or dancing or you know theater performances being being given for free so that people can watch them yeah it's the bit that we've, I think, just having the entertainment industry taken away from us for a while, mm. hopefully will make us value it more when it comes back. Yeah, definitely. Um, I keep my fingers crossed for that because it, it, we're always seen as they're kind of the nice icing on the cake. But mm. really, you know, it, it, really we are here to nourish human beings' souls. Yes. That's what we're here to do, you know. <laughs> And we need our souls to be nourished. It's an important part of being who we are as human beings. Definitely. Absolutely. Talking about nourishing the souls, <laughs> um, a little segue there. So we've talked a lot about um, your work with Opera Sonic. Could you tell us a bit about your new role with Anthem? You know, what are your key aims about, you know, link to diversifying the musical landscape of Wales and, you know, how we reach those young people. So Anthem New Charity, um, it started about two years ago um, and it's had um, some seed funding from Welsh Government um, to set up an endowment um, to support music education, music making and learning for young people in Wales. Um, I took on the, the role of Chief Executive Officer very very posh title i'm basically the only member of staff um, at the moment uh and i started with them in october um and really the anthem's vision is for us to have a wales in which music can empower every young life um now we know that there are a lot of young people who are involved in music in wales Um, we know that their journeys into music um, differ depending on where they have their musical experience whether they live in the middle of Powys, where there's not much going on, or mm-hmm. whether they live in the middle of Cardiff, where there's a lot going on, or whether they you know, went to a school that really valued music and really was passionate about getting them into it, or whether they went to a school that really it wasn't a big priority and so they didn't you know, get, get offered it. So, I mean, there's lots of journeys into music, but I think um, Anthem really wants to remove barriers for young people to get involved with music we really want to generate more opportunities. We really want to join everything up and really drive best practice in Wales um, and nurture the talent that we know is there um, and give it the best opportunity it can, you know, whoever that young person is from wherever they start, to give them the best opportunity that they can to um, go as far as they need to in music and 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 whether that's about having always having music with them to um you know um to work to work with their mental health um and to build their confidence because you know we know that that music is hugely important to young people in that area and and that quite often um music young people use music to to modulate their moods and drive their moods in certain ways and you know that's huge I do that too actually to be fair it's not just young people I do that but um it's uh, you know that's hugely important but also some people want to find a pathway into the industry and they want to take that pathway and that might be playing um, and performing 
or it might be working on music events and um, or music journalism or it might be radio or, you know there are so many and varied mm. uh, opportunities within the music industry and I think music in Wales feels very strong to me at the moment in yeah. terms of some of the amazing bands that are coming through um, and and you know we've got the Welsh Music Prize that happens every year and highlights some of those incredible artists so there's there's a whole creative industries uh, world there for young people to walk into if they want to yeah um, and I guess Anthem's looking at that pathway that journey that a young person might have through music in Wales and how we can how we can support that um, support those young people and and build that progression route and make it really strong because we are a musical nation Definitely. Know, I talked about how how WNO started earlier on we're a musical we love music yeah. in Wales <laughs> there so you know we need we need to live and breathe that through our young people definitely that is a a positive stereotype that i will happily wear on my <laughs> you know on my heart yeah, on my sleeve definitely. i am welsh and i love music <laughs> yeah thank you amen to that well thank you so much for coming on the show rian i wonder if a to pleasure, end Clary. yeah no it's been <laughs> lovely um i asked you before we started chatting to think of a song that has impacted you um impacted you greatly that could be a song you know from your childhood that could be an original piece maybe that you've been involved in the creation of or you know just something that is stuck in your head at the minute um <laughs> and if you could tell us the name of that song and why it has impacted you well, this has been a disaster. I mean, this, I've just been going round in my head on this one for ages because my, my music taste is massively eclectic. <laughs> I, I like all kinds of, and, you know, throughout the week I will listen to a huge range of stuff from, you know, high opera right through to um, EDM <laughs> and kind of 90s rave music, which I was very into at the time, um, <laughs> through to kind of, you know, all, all of your, your 80s stuff. And yeah, so it's been very hard. <laughs> I had to go and talk it through with my 15-year-old who, who just told me to get on with it. Yeah. Um, but um, in the end, I've gone for um, Amelia by Joni Mitchell. Okay. This is, it's a very beautiful song that I love to sing along to. Um, I, I, I love it because it's about her mental state. So it's not an aria. So an aria is a song in an opera. We would call a song in an opera an aria. And many arias in opera are about people's internal mental state. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love Amelia by Joni Mitchell because it, it's, it's, it's a folk, you know, it's kind of American folk in a way, but it still does what an aria does, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of, a lot of songs do, but it, it talks about her mental state and she's obviously she's on tour. She's she's kind of moving day after day. She's finding it really hard. She's just come out of a, a relationship and, you know, she was she's she's trying to find love, but it's it's all collapsed around her. And it's such a it's such a beautiful song. And I love her voice. I love the way she story tells through it. I love the imagery is um, it's quite a long song, but you can kind of lose yourself in it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've gone for. What, what album is that off? Oh, and I can't pronounce this now. It's the, <laughs> it's the one that begins with H. Is it Haraja? Is that oh, yeah, I haven't got that one. I, I do like Joni Mitchell a lot, but I will have to, I have to look it up and have a listen. Somebody will be writing into you to correct. Yes, I'll, I'll pop a clip in of it. <laughs> um, 
so everyone can have a little listen as well. Thank you for sharing that with he, he, us. Hegira, Hegira. Ah, right. 19, 1976. There we are. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Rian. My yeah. pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Bye now. Bye. Join us next time when we interview disability rights activist Ginny Butcher. I started this hashtag accessible advent um, campaign and just hoped that people would get involved and fortunately they really did and the disability community has really got involved in this.